Good morning. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, we continue to sing praises to your name. You are eternal, everlasting God, most high, Jehovah Jireh, our provider, Lord God of peace, great I am, full of mercy, compassionate, shepherd. You tenderly take us by the hand and you lead us by your Holy Spirit, our teacher, our guide. You are our God who sees us and delights in us. And we praise you and we thank you for your presence. Father, we cannot see all that you are working on on our behalf, but we know from your word that it is for our good and for your glory. You have promised to never leave us. You've told us to bring our concerns to you, to speak candidly, to pour out our hearts, to name every burden, every care. First Thessalonians tells us to thank you in all circumstances, as this is your will for us in Christ Jesus. We praise your holy name. You are Jehovah Rapha, our healer. Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus says, Come, all of you are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Father, we now come and ask requests for our church family. And, Lord, the needs are many. We continue to humbly ask for Daphne Rice as her health continues to decline. You, Jesus, are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. We cry out to you now to make a way for Daphne and Steve to get the help that they need. We pray for clarity and peace and protection provision, your miraculous interventions. Father, for Elaine and Nathan Tanner and their family as they continue to care for his dad, recent scans now show multiple blockages in Mrs. Tanner, and she's been referred to Emory in Atlanta for evaluation. Because of the severity of the stroke this spring, Father, we just ask that you would put all of those pieces in place. Lord, we pray for your peace that passes all understanding to cover their hearts and their minds during this difficult season and that they would cast all of their anxiety on you. Jesus, we lay it all at your feet. Father, we also pray for Walter and Jeannie Carter. We praise you, Lord, for your miraculous interventions and all that you're doing for them. And Father, we, we have to pray for Florida. We have to pray for the Carolinas and the recent devastation, Lord. Father, we thank you for the tremendous outpouring of love and help and support that they have received in the aftermath of this terrible storm. We pray, Lord, that they would look to you, Father, as you comfort them during this difficult time. And now in closing, as our pastor comes to bring the written word, Holy Spirit, we ask for a clear understanding and application that you've given. We also want to thank you and pray for our pastors and their wives, the elders and their families. And now may Lord Jesus, may you be glorified as we pray all of these prayers in your name, name above all names, amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's uh, preschool through fifth grade. Go ahead and make your way out to the lobby, and you can uh, meet your parents or meet your teachers there. A uh, few announcements for us in the life of the church um, in the weeks ahead. If you have the little bulletin sheet, you can see what's going on. And uh, one of the things that we have a sign-up sheet for out. In the back of the room is a men's breakfast. We'd love for any of you guys to join us for that. 
on Saturday morning. There are uh, two times listed, and I want to clarify that uh, breakfast will start at 7.45, but the doors will be open at 6.30. And we recognize some guys are inherently early risers, whether it's Saturday or not, and some guys want a little extra time on Saturday morning. So if you want to come and start fellowshipping early, doors will be open to Backstage Cafe at 6.30, but the breakfast itself will start after that. We'll have a devotional and just some good time to spend with men from the church. So uh, you don't have to sign up to be there, but we want you to sign up so that we can have a better plan for, for food. And so there's a sheet in the, ba- end of the back of this room for that. also want to let you know that we have more child dedications uh, coming up. We had a few a couple weeks ago. We've got two more dates already set for that, October 16th and November 6th. We've got baptisms coming up October 23rd, and we'll actually add a second date to that because of, of interest in baptism. And so if you, as a young parent, want to bring your child to be dedicated before the Lord and before your church family, uh, please let me know. And if you're interested in talking about baptism, if you've never been baptized, then it's fitting to at least have a conversation and see um, if you are at the point in your salvation and your walk with Christ to consider making that public step. And parents, I'd encourage you to bring it up to your children. Talk about what baptism is and and talk about uh, when a young child might be ready. And I'm happy to help with those conversations um, because uh, finding the right time and season to to baptize a young person as they grow in their knowledge of the Lord is is a difficult thing to, to discover as a parent. I'm happy to help with those conversations. There's other things going on in the life of the church. There's tonight we have uh, kids ministry, we have youth ministry, and we have some life groups. And so I want to spend a little bit extra time this morning telling you about our life group ministry at Fellowship. So I'm going to invite Mark Higgins, one of our life group leaders, um, up here to join me. And Mark's going to tell you a little bit um, about his experiences and share a testimony about his ministry as a life group leader. Morning. Uh, before I started, I, there's been there's a one story that kind of came from a life group that um, is just um, it's kind of funny when it happened, but it, it really I think um, kind of focuses on what life groups are all about. And um, the story is um, a family that I met in our life group um, uh, had a mother who had a need for a place to stay, and I had a mother and father who have an empty house that. Um, uh, has nobody in it. They were empty nesters. Um, the kids are grown. The grandkids aren't there or anything. So um, I, um, I, I tried to put them in contact with each other, and they were in, and uh, the mother was able to stay with my mother and father, and, and um, uh, it worked out great. It was a, a great uh, opportunity for my mom to, to meet some, another believer and for, for that person to have a need met. And um, the funny thing was is I talked to my mom about it, and I said, well, how did the stay go? And um, Oh, it was great, um, but, and I'm not going to name the person, I don't want to embarrass them or anything, but she said, um, well, this person said they didn't know you, and I'm like, wait a second, I, I see the person every week, I say hello to the person, um, and then, um, so I, I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to seek that person out the next time I see him when I'm, when I'm back at church, and so I, um, so I sought that person out, and, and she indicated, well, I know you, I know who you are, but I'm, I, we haven't really got to know each other, um, and, you know, that, that really, it was kind of funny to me that it was just a difference in definition of words that were used. And, but it, it really hits home as to why life groups, to, to me, are important. Or building, more, more broadly, just building relationships amongst believers are important. Um, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can ask you to raise your hand and ask you if you know me. And I, I get a decent number of people that say they know me, okay? But then if I ask you, do you really know me? Uh, what do you know about me? How much do you know about my background, my details? I might get 20% of those people or, or whatever. And, um, so that, that's just kind of something that's stuck with me. It's something that's a really important way of looking at, at life groups or, or, or building relationships. Um, life groups for me, I, I'm going to give you a, a quick three-minute version, three-minute history of my life group experience um, since I've been in Dalton. I've been here for 27 years uh, in Dalton. I uh, started out at, at another church, a good church here in town, um, and had a, had a um, group of people that were all young marrieds in a group and a, a wonderful um, mentors that are actually in this church. I'm not going to name them either, but um, uh, they're now in this church, but who took us, who took seven or eight uh, young couples who had no idea what they were doing about marriage, who had no idea what they were doing about raising kids, and... Um, uh, 
uh, took them under their wings and, and ministered to them and met their needs and helped them learn about parenting, helped them learn about relationships with each other. Um, and so I, I say that, I'm not going to go any further than that other than to say, you know, that, that was um, an experience for me that um, led me to understand the importance of, of life groups. Um, fast forward to about eight months, uh, eight or nine months ago, back in the end of last summer, um, I hadn't been involved in a life group for a while. My wife was leading uh, the nursery duties, and I kind of had been away for no real reason um, other than just different, different things, and I just wasn't attending a life group, that's the bottom line. And, and so I asked him um, towards the end of the year, he's like, you know, I, I know there's a lot of new families in the church, and there's, um, you know, is, is there a place, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy to facilitate, you know, a life group if there's, if there's a need for one. And so Tim gave me a couple families, and I'm an organizer, and I like to try to do things the right way. And so I'm like, well, I want to, if I'm going to start a new life group, I want everybody to have some sort of, I'd rather start with a core group of people and have every, everybody have some sort of input into what they want out of this life group. I mean, I think life groups don't have to be cookie cutter and all the same for everybody. And so I, weeks went on, and I, I reached out to a few families, and, and um, then um, uh, I think July, January came around, and I, again, I only had two or three families, and then all of a sudden another family came, and then another family came, and everybody kept saying, well, they, well, they want to be part of the life group. They want to be part of life group. So ultimately, um, new families in the church, families that had come back to the church, we, we kind of started a life group. We sat down and said, all right, what, what do we want from a life group? And, you know, life groups, I think, have, can be different from every, for every group, and I, I think the leaders of our church have not come to me or come to any life group, I think, and said, this is what your life group has to be, and I think that's, I think that's important. But we kind of, as a group, sat down and determined there's some kind of core things that are, that are involved in a life group, um, one being uh, relationships. I mean, that's, isn't that the reason for a life group? I mean, we can all sit here and have a great message from Tim and then go home and go about our lives and live life by ourselves, or we can live life together. And I think um, relationships is, is a key component that we wanted to see in, in our life groups. We wanted you know, there to be connections and investing in each other's lives. Um, obviously, fellowship, the name in our church, is a way to do that, right? Getting together, creating opportunities to foster relationships. Um, caring and praying, praying and caring for each other. Um, meeting each other's physical needs. I mean, somebody needs help moving something. Somebody needs help fixing something. Um, pray, prayer. I mean, we have great prayers, and I appreciate every lady. And I'm going to use this opportunity to thank every lady, and I say ladies, but there's a lot of men also. Everybody who who consistently prays for the needs of, the, of this body, I, I appreciate, and I, I want to personally thank you guys. Um, um, and, and then, and then, discipleship and ministry are other components that we wanted, that we we identified. In other words, discipleship, doing something, whether it's a study or whatever, to increase our faith, increase our um, understanding of of God and His purpose for us. Um, and then ministry. Obviously, our church has ministries, but it's it's also good for smaller groups in the church to be able to say, "All right, we see this. We see this need here." within the church or with outside the church. And we're going we're gonna to take that under our wings and we're going to go with it and, and try to meet those needs. Um, you know, we, we've been here nine months, and, I, and I'll say my personal testimony is, is that it's ministered a lot to me. Um, you know, let's get back to knowing versus knowing what I started with. Um, since I've been involved with the eight or nine couples in our group, um, obviously I've got to know several of them better, um, and I've got to know on different levels, and, and you know, I, I know one individual who's a, and you may not know, some of you guys may know, how many people here know that we have a championship medieval sword fighter amongst our midst here? Okay, a few. Um, how many of you know his incredible testimony about coming to Jesus? Um, you know, that, I had the opportunity to, to, to learn both those things, and those were neat things for me. Um, uh, I've, I've learned about incredible hardships and trials that people in my, um, in my group have uh, gone through. Um, you know, I, I've learned and I now know the heart that several members of my group have for seeking uh, Jesus and for sharing Jesus and the gospel with others. Um, uh, 
I, I know and have had families in my life group who consistently remind me of where my priorities need to be. Um, where, you know, getting rid of all this stuff, um, getting rid of all the layers that can be there and just peeling it down to the basics. Um, and that, you know, I, I, I'm thankful for people in that group who have, who have sh um, shown that to me. Um, and, and really being able to distill and simplify their faith, again, to the, the very basics um, of what's important. Um, my, my final thought for you guys is, is just, um, you know, whether it's a life group, again, I, I, I'm here to, I guess, promote life groups or I, whatever, but I'm here to promote relationships is what I'm here to promote. Um, you know, be intentional. My final thought to you is be intentional about doing something with those who you're sitting around um, to establish new relationships. We have new people every week. Um, you know, and it's easy to sit here and all of a sudden you see these new people and you're like, I don't I really want to go up to them, but there's some neat people out there that are coming to our midst and there's some people that have needs that are coming to our midst and I would encourage you before you walk out this door to go find somebody you haven't met before. And you run the risk of them being here for two years. I've done that plenty of times. You know, they've, they've been here, oh, I'm Mark Higgins. Oh, how long have you been here? Three years. So it's like, Hey, take that risk because uh, it'll pay off for them, it'll pay off for you, uh, and we'll build the body of Christ. And uh, I appreciate, Tim, the opportunity to share. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Um, we have several small groups that are meeting um, this evening. If listening to Mark makes you want to visit one this evening or, or next week, um, we want you to know that at 5.30 when kids ministry and youth ministry starts, we have several life groups that meet regularly on campus on Sunday evenings. Um, Mark's is, is one of them. Um, we have another couple that are starting up uh, next week. The Winter Hobby Group um, is starting back next week on Sunday evenings. Um, Todd and Meredith Williams are leading a group, and they're going to be focusing on uh, Christianity and God and technology, how Christians think about the challenges that technology creates as their study. Um, the, uh, then David and Paul Pasqua are leading a group that's meeting this evening, and they do a sermon discussion as the winner and hobby group does as well. They kind of unpack the, the passage from the Sunday morning. Um, something else about Mark, um, one of the unique experiences I've had working with Mark as a small group leader is he told you he's an organized person. Uh, Mark takes meticulous notes, and um, uh, sometimes the, his small group will do different studies, and sometimes they'll do sermon discussion for their studies. And um, so Mark has a habit of taking very extensive notes on a Sunday morning sermon and uh, calling me on Sunday afternoon and saying, okay, now before I talk to my group about this, what, what did you mean by this point that you said this morning? And if you don't know, Mark is a, a prosecuting attorney. And when Mark is like questioning your sermon on a Sunday afternoon, you're like, now wait a second here, what... I don't remember what I said, Mark. Let me go back and check my notes, because your notes are better than mine at this point. But no, I say that as, as a joke. Mark, has it's been really encouraging to have those Sunday afternoon conversations with him and say, um, hey, I want to make sure that my group gets this tonight. I want to hammer in this point that you were making. And uh, it's really encouraging as a pastor to know that the ministry doesn't end at noon on Sunday. And so we want all of you to remember that our desire for you is not for the ministry to end at noon on Sunday. Uh, but if Sunday evening is the right time to come back, we've got two that are meeting tonight and uh, a total of four that within the next two weeks will be meeting regularly on Sunday evenings. We've got uh, three that met this morning before our service. We've got a couple that met during the week. We've got a Wednesday night prayer meeting is a small venue, small setting in which it's great to build relationships there. And there, all of these things, the common theme is, as Mark said, we want you to be connected with people in the church and not just um, coming in on Sunday morning and worshiping, which is great and beautiful, and then going about your lives. There's, uh, not everybody likes the name tags, um, but we think the name tags are important because we want people to really get to know each other. We, we need co-laborers in the Christian life. We need friends, brothers, and sisters to walk through the challenges of life with. So I pray that you'll, you'll consider that um, and uh, consider joining us this evening and 
uh, dropping in on, on David and Paula Pasqua's life group or, or Mark's life group or coming back next week for the winter and um, hobbies one or the um, Williams in a couple weeks or Sunday morning, Craig and Gail lead a fantastic life group. John and Liz Joyce and Nell Heineman leads a women's life group on Sunday mornings. There's so many opportunities, and, and I just pray that you would consider how you could be more involved and connected. I'm going to ask you to turn to First uh, Timothy chapter 1. We're going to reflect on what we celebrate and also what we guard and protect. I've taken up a second career in all my free time. Some of you, that makes you nervous. Don't worry, I'm not going to quit the ministry. Some of you were ready to applaud when I started mentioning a second career. Um, but the, what I've been spending my spare time on right now is as a fourth and fifth grade girls volleyball coach which has been a unique challenge for me. Um, I've spent a little bit of time coaching little boys in soccer and basketball, and that's more my comfort zone. I never, I'm not an ideal coach. Uh, most coaches have had some level of success on the athletic field themselves. That's not necessarily true of me. I just go in to try to encourage and help kids have fun and get a little bit better. So I brought that philosophy to coaching girls for the first time, this year because my 10-year-old wanted to play volleyball, wanted to get better, and I said, well, I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try to support her. I've coached her little brother a lot, and I'm going to give her a season to try, to try to make sure that she's learning the skills she needs to learn and she's having a good experience with volleyball. And one of the things that I've learned that might surprise you, it probably doesn't, coaching boys and girls is different. Um, coaching, coaching boys... And maybe, to be totally honest, I'm not sure I have the coaching little boys thing all figured out because I tend to, to treat 7- and 8-year-old boys like they're 15- and 16-year-old boys. So maybe I'm not the best at that. But, but I'm very comfortable looking at a little boy in the face and being like, don't do that again. That doesn't work. Don't ever do that again. But there's this look that a little girl has in her face when I say that that tells me that's not always the proper approach. And there was, one, there was one practice where I, I just came home and I looked at Jess and I said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't know why I took on this. Because I could just see the girls. Because you're in a loud gym. I'm a loud guy. And I want the girls to hear what I'm saying because I want to, I want to help. But uh, as my helping goes, it becomes a lot of yelling in a gym that echoes back and forth. And... Um, and as I start to raise my voice, I can just see it on the girls, and I think, okay, I've reached my limit with that girl. I'm not going to yell at her again, because like, I'm just trying to yell encouragement, to yell direction, to help them get in the right place to be the most successful. And let me tell you, I, it's been a blast. It's been so fun. And the secret of coaching a sport you've never coached before is to find a 14-year-old that knows what they're doing that's secretly the real coach. And it's actually not a secret anymore, but I've got a 14-year-old girl that's a real volleyball player that has been fantastic with those girls. But what I've learned with coaching these girls is the approach that I take is you have to know what you're going to guard against. You, you need to know what are the fundamentally correct behaviors and what are the fundamentally wrong behaviors. And you celebrate what's good. You celebrate those right things. And with the boys... I tended more towards the negative reinforcement on what they did wrong. And what I've learned from these girls is they respond better when I celebrate the right things they do rather than um, attack them for the wrong things that they do. So as a for instance, okay, basic volleyball move. Uh, and, some of the, and I'm just going to be real here. Sometimes you're in the midst of a game, the crowd, the audience, they get really excited about just a point that is scored. And we're trying to teach girls how to do things the right way. Sometimes you have to kind of work against the crowd who might accidentally reinforce something that probably shouldn't have happened in the first place. So here's an example. Ball's to your right over here. And a little girl keeps her feet right where they are and goes like this and just hits the ball with one hand. It goes over and it's inbound. And the crowd goes wild. And I'm over here like... That's not what she needs to do. That's not the right behavior right there. But I'm not going to, as a coach, sit there and be like, 
no, 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 you, you can't hit it with one hand like that. But when that same little girl takes a couple steps to her right and hits it the right way, I'm going to celebrate and try to reinforce that behavior even if, and here's the thing, here's what you have to do as a coach sometimes. You reinforce the right behaviors, the right fundamental actions, even when this ball goes out of bounds and this ball goes in bounds. Because you're trying to train them how to do it the right way and not the lazy way, not the wrong way. And so even when the crowd goes wild and says, wow, that was an amazing one-handed hit, as a coach, you've got to be like, no, 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 we're, we, we have two hands for a reason, and we're going to try to use both of them. But as we approach this passage today, that theme of celebrating the right things and guarding against the wrong things by guarding and celebrating the right things is exactly what Paul does in this passage. We need to know what is true, what is right, and what is proper for our lives as believers and representatives of Jesus. And we celebrate what is most true. And we guard what is most true. We guard against those, that, those things that are contrary to the truth. This is Paul's approach throughout all 1 Timothy. We're kind of wrapping up today the, the end of the first section. All of chapter 1 is basically a, an extended greeting where Paul is writing to his representative, Timothy, and is presenting to Timothy, here is what's most important for you to know in order to build your church in Ephesus. And he ends chapter 1 with this, this section of celebration. And we can learn a lot from seeing what Paul celebrates. My goal as a volleyball coach is for the girls to see the actions and the, the behaviors that I'm celebrating and for them to do those actions. It's the same with parenting, same with lots of forms of leadership. When you see the behaviors that you want as a leader, your people to do, you celebrate those to reinforce those. Paul is telling Timothy, we need to be very clear about what we're celebrating in the local church. So first, this morning, we'll talk about celebration and then we'll talk about warfare. We'll talk about guarding and protecting the truth against opponents. So 1 Timothy 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You see what I'm talking about here? This is a passage of celebration, kind of a passage of self-deprecation along with the celebration. Paul is celebrating the basic truths of the gospel. And along, that, along those lines of celebration is being clear about where he stands in this redemptive story that God is accomplishing for humanity, for all who believe. Paul is placing himself not in the section of this great guy who's super righteous, but he's defining himself as the foremost of sinners. So as we unpack what it means to celebrate grace this morning, we're going to unpack it this way. First, we're going to start seeing how practical changes in Paul's life have been celebrated in this passage. Look at verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Paul's got three specific aspects of practical personal change that he's celebrating here. I, I thank him who has given me strength. So Paul was in a position of weakness, and God has brought him from the position of weakness to a position of strength. Number two, he, has, he is specifically grateful because God has judged him faithful. 
So Paul was weak, and God made him strong. Paul was unfaithful, and is very clear and honest about that, and God has now judged him as faithful. And Paul was once persecuting God, and now Paul has appointed him to his service. That the same Jesus who he persecuted has now called Paul and say, stop persecuting me, but he didn't stop there. He didn't say, Paul, just leave me alone. He said, Paul, stop persecuting me, now go serve me and go speak the antithesis of the message that you were once proclaiming. And so he's celebrating these practical changes where God has given him strength. And, and let, me, let me say it this way. When we approach the gospel, and, and this passage is, again, as much of 1 Timothy is, centered around the core of the gospel. That is what needs to be protected. That is this trust this sacred trust that must be protected against all enemies is the clear message of the gospel that saves sinners. That's Paul's goal in this passage, is to highlight and celebrate that message. But as we go through this passage, what you're going to see is a way to very clearly and succinctly just preach the gospel to somebody. So many of us, I'm sure, have been, have been put in a situation where we are trying to have a conversation with somebody that we care about that is lost, not a believer in Jesus. And we've gotten to this challenging point of how do I succinctly, clearly, carefully speak the words of the gospel, present the gospel? Well, I can tell you right now, not to skip ahead too far, but verse 15 gives you the succinct statement of the gospel. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So the message of the gospel is simple. You know who Christ is, and you know who a sinner is. And, he, and centrally, you know that you are a sinner. And you know that the person you're talking to is a sinner. And any person you might ever talk to is a sinner. And so therefore, the gospel speaks to these needs. And in verse 12, he's thinking of those practical needs. He may not have recognized the strength that he needed. Verse 12, he's praising God for giving him strength. But let me tell you something. If you look back at pre-conversion Paul, a couple years ago, we went through the book of Acts together. And it's a great experience. I encourage you, read through the book of Acts regularly. It's amazing to see the stories of transformation there in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. But Paul was in one section breathing out murderous threats against the church and against the followers of Jesus. That's how Luke, the author of Acts, describes it, that Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus. And then Jesus meets him along the road, and he's saved. Paul did not recognize that when he was breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus that he was in a position of weakness there, even though he thought he had the power. You look back and you read about Paul on the road to Damascus. He had the letters from the high priest. He had the authority to imprison whoever he found that was following Jesus. He was carrying the authority of the Jewish, uh, of the Jewish um, religious leaders. And he was going to persecute believers in Jesus with the authority that he had. And now, years later, as he's looking back, he said, no, no, no. That was weakness then. Now, in Christ, I have found strength. The people we speak to that need to hear the gospel do not always recognize their needs as, as well as they might post-salvation, right? Sometimes we get in a relationship with somebody that, is that we can minister to real felt needs, despair, lack of hope, frustration, I don't know where I'm going with my life. I don't know what to do. I don't know what my priorities. And we can minister to those felt needs. We can minister to those weaknesses and bring the strength of the gospel in. But we also preach the message of the gospel to people that think they're all right, think they got it all figured out. That's who Paul was. And so when we celebrate the gospel, we celebrate those practical changes where he takes somebody that was weak and makes them strong, somebody that was unfaithful and makes them faithful, someone who was persecuting him and makes him a servant. Paul recognized he did not deserve any of these aspects of transformation that he experienced, but he received mercy. One of the great problems that we face 
in our ministry, in our evangelism, in our discipleship, is people that believe that God owes them something. Well, God owes me this. I follow God and therefore he should give me this. Paul is speaking from a place of such extreme humility here in which he can say, straightforward, I am the foremost of sinners, God owes me nothing, and look what he has given me. He's transformed me from this place of great weakness into this place of great strength because of his work and his work alone. So we celebrate the practical changes, but then Paul gets a little bit more radical in the way he has changed when he speaks of his own biography. In verse 13, look what Paul says about himself. Formerly, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now, let me tell you something. If I brought somebody up here before you and said, we have a new member to the church, let me tell you about his testimony. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was, an, he was insolent. He was ignorant in his unbelief. You would probably not like the way I said those things. This is not me talking bad about Paul. This is Paul being honest about himself. This is the great honesty of somebody who recognizes God doesn't owe me any of this. Because look at who I was, breathing out murderous threats against the followers of Jesus, standing by, holding coats as a young man who followed Jesus and was preaching the beautiful gospel of Jesus, was killed right in Paul's presence. He watched that happen when Stephen was murdered. He approved of that happening when Stephen was murdered. He was a blasphemer who spoke evil of Jesus and his followers. He was a persecutor who took pleasure in the violence and humiliation that he took part in against the followers of Jesus. He was an insolent opponent towards Jesus, not just the people that followed Jesus, but towards Jesus himself. And that's why he was confronted on the road to Damascus, and Jesus didn't look at Paul and say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my followers? He said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Because to persecute a follower of Jesus is to persecute Jesus. But he said, all of this was happening because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. But I want you to look at something here. Look at verse 13. I was, formerly, I was, blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. I received mercy because I had, again, past tense, I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Look at verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul did not say, did not say of whom I was the foremost. Look at Paul's perspective here. There's a, there's a, a word of caution in just the verb tenses that he is intentional in using in these couple of verses. He is not denying his transformation in verse 15. He is saying in verse 13, I was radically transformed. Look at who I once was. But in verse 15, he is saying the implications of that life of sinfulness still remain true for me. And I am still to be regarded as a heinous sinner who is foremost in my offenses against God Almighty. And I think that's essential for us to recognize, to see the full weight of the gospel. Sometimes if we, if we approach it from a human standpoint, we think, well, why are we talking about that mistake from years ago still? You're somebody different now. Let's not hold that against you. But a true sinner that is saved by grace has such a radical experience of forgiveness that they can look back and recognize this is, this is probably 20 years that has passed between the road to Damascus and writing Timothy. And in all of those years, Paul can look back and say, I'm still the foremost of sinners, because he recognizes the same flesh, the same human flesh that failed him all those years ago was still present within him. The new life of Christ was present within him too, but he so recognized the radical transformation and radical forgiveness that he had received. That is what leads to the worship we see in the text. Because here's the thing, if you're just talking about something that happened years ago, you're appreciation and celebration of it is going to wane. And if you continue to just say, boy, I, I was terrible back then, but man, that was, that was years ago. I was the foremost of sinners 15 years ago. It may not lead to the same level of worship now. 
But Paul is still using the present tense to speak of his sin 15 years after, after conversion. And I think it's important for us to recognize that we, that we in our worship and in our praise to God should always be living in light of what has transformed us and in such an appreciation of who he has made us and the forgiveness he has given us, not just for those heinous sins that we committed 15 years ago, but for those what we would consider micro-sins of covetousness and greed and, and lust and all those sins of the mind that are still plaguing us today that we think, well, those are the little things. I did all the bad things back then. I'm not that guy anymore. Now I'm just struggling with these little things. It would be helpful for us. It would be helpful for us to recognize as we approach the throne of God that those sins are significant too. And we recognize that we are still sinners and we are still in need of such a radical, transformative forgiveness. So Paul looks at the practical changes in his life, he looks at the radical change of his life, and then he looks at the gospel. So he celebrates the practical change, celebrates the radical change. In verse 14, he really starts to speak of the gospel. And let's look at it. Verse 14, the grace of our Lord. This is so powerful for me to reflect on. Because let's, let's look at the words that Jesus is saying through the Apostle Paul into your heart and mind today. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But as I received mercy, but I received mercy for this reason. Throughout this passage, Jesus is giving us this presentation of the gospel. Verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Verse 13 and 16, twice, Paul speaks of receiving mercy. Here's why I received mercy. Here's why I needed mercy. And in verse 14, overflowing grace. John Bunyan, who is most famously known as the author of of the Pilgrim's Progress. He was in prison for a number of years because of his stand for his faith. Lived a life of great suffering, but was a great Bible teacher. People remember him as sort of a novelist, but he was a, a teacher, a preacher, a pastor who suffered tremendously for his faith and was, and was refined by fire as he suffered. He was once a heinous sinner, though. And his autobiography of his own testimony and work in, in, in that God did in his life, he entitled it, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And he took it in part from this verse 14, grace that is overflowing. I was grateful for Jeannie praying for those in Florida that have faced such devastation and hardship over the last week. We've all seen the images, we've seen the videos of what it, what it looks like for a storm surge to, to come in and for once dry land to just be covered over in water in, in a matter of minutes and hours. We've seen these videos of, of what was once dry now soaked with water. And I hope you've watched some of the time lapses of just what it looks like when that surge comes in. I want you to, to as you think about that in the days ahead, as you pray for those in Florida, I pray that you do. I want you to think about a different type of overflowing and a different type of, of flooding in. Because Paul is intentional in using overflowing as a description of grace. He's intentional with speaking of a grace that is like a flood that is coming in, that is carrying away a lost sinner and bringing them to a new location. Think about it, if you watch any of the videos of the, the boats that were sitting in a marina that end up washing down Main Street in, in this great power of the storm and the water that starts rushing in. We see that, and there are so many negative and hard images to watch that we've seen. But I want you to think of the power of God and what God does and what Christ does in His great love for us. That in His, in his overflowing grace, He gives a surge of grace into the lives of an unbeliever 
and takes a sinner and washes away sin for sure, but washes them from one kingdom into a new kingdom, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, from a way of from a life of following the flesh into a life of following the life of the spirit. That is the type of grace that we have received. A grace that is overwhelming, that is overflowing, that surges in, that floods us out and moves us along and carries us away in the great wave of God's love and his beauty and his purposes for our lives. And Paul is saying, I'm just riding the wave of God's overflowing, flooding grace for me. But it's not just grace, it's mercy. Grace is this gift that we do not deserve. Mercy is withholding the punishment that that we do deserve, showing love and affection to one who has offended the great king. God released him from the punishment that that he deserved, and God is displaying his perfect patience. Paul is recognizing that he himself is an illustration. Uh, Look at uh, verse 16. He says in verse 16, I received mercy so that, As the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul's saying, you think you're so far off that you're not going to receive mercy from God. Look at my biography. Look at my story. Look at what's happened to me. He's saying, look at me as an illustration and see the perfect patience of God. So he celebrates the way he's changed And he celebrates that at the center of his change is this overflowing mercy, this this overflowing grace, undeserved mercy, and this simple message, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then in verse 17, he turns away from the message of the gospel, in part, to celebrate just the character of God. Verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. When Paul stops, and, and, and guys, this is, this is where we should all be in our relationship with God. When you stop and you reflect on who you are now, who you once were, all of those sins that you have willfully committed against God, and everything that has gone right and wrong in your life, and there are things that, that, that didn't go the way you wanted to, that were out of your control, and there's things, there's problems that you caused for yourself, and you reflect on all of that, and then you reflect on where your standing with Christ is, based on His finished work, and based on the eternal promise that He makes. The only reasonable, the only logical conclusion is one of great gratitude. Because no matter where you are in a position in this life, if your position is new in Christ, saved by Christ, then your eternal standing is sealed, is accomplished, is promised, and is guaranteed by the Spirit of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And the only logical response, honor and glory to the one true king. You look at all the coverage the last couple weeks, probably no individual in the entire world has been talked about more in the last couple of weeks than Queen Elizabeth. You have such a person that is, number one, been incredibly influential, lived for a a very long, rich lifetime, learned through, lived through lots of, of significant periods in world history, and had an incredible amount of influence over not just her nation, but many nations. And you look and you see people that are not just in, the, in Great Britain, but all around the world that are so affected by the death of this woman who had such a role of influence and such a notoriety. And you think of how significant it is. You think of she reigned on her throne for one-third of American history. What an incredible lifetime. What incredible longevity. And then we turn to God in verse 17. The king of the ages. Immortal. Think of the effect that one monarch has had in our generation that that the whole world is talking about. The most watched funeral is to grieve this one woman. And, And so many people are talking about the uncertainty, the sort of they were surprised 
by their feelings of insecurity in knowing that Queen Elizabeth, who had been there their entire lifetime, is no longer there. She was a central figure, and she's no longer there. And it feels weird. It's, it's been surprising for so many people how that has affected them. And Paul is saying, there is a king who will never leave his throne. There is a king who will reign through every storm, through every challenge, through every surprise, through every victory and every defeat. He's immortal. He's invisible. And you know, we complain about his invisibility. You know that, right? We as humans and our weak brokenness, we act like his invisibility is a bad thing. I just want to see him. I just want to touch him. I would believe him if I could see him. Paul is worshiping him for his invisibility because his invisibility accomplishes his transcendence. His invisibility guarantees that God is someone other than us, is not like us. He is immortal. He is never going to die. He is always going to reign. And he is invisible because he is not like us. His character is so much greater than us. His power is so much beyond ours. He transcends everything that we see and think and even all that we can even imagine. His invisibility is actually what leads us to worship. Because we don't want to worship somebody that's like us. We don't want to worship somebody that's just an idealized version of ourselves. We raise ourselves in worship to one who is other, who is greater. So after reflecting and celebrating, Paul then turns to guarding in verse 18. Verse 18 through 20. This I charge to you, this I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made about you by that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Three points on guarding grace here. Entrusting grace, warring for grace, shipwrecked by grace. Paul established Timothy as his representative of this message. What Paul had sent Timothy to Ephesus to do, to lead a church, sure. But more than anything, Timothy does not seem to be the long-term pastor of Ephesus. Timothy is a delegate from Paul, Paul's representative, to accomplish a good organization and protection of the core message of what that church needed to stand for. Timothy was there to combat those that stood against the message, and Timothy was there to train those that would continue to protect the message. So Timothy is guarding this great trust, and the center of the trust is verse 15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we are all included in that category of sinner. Grace must be clearly defined. Grace must be clearly protected. We must know, brothers and sisters, that we are sinners that are saved by grace. And it is only through Jesus and him crucified do we have an opportunity for eternal life. And any other goal or purpose in life other than seeking him and finding satisfaction in him will leave us empty. Whatever strategy you have to heal, to restore, to find hope and peace, whatever strategy you have, if it's not centered around Jesus and the cross, it will lead toward hopelessness. And this grace is so important that we guard it and we protect it, and we even go to war on behalf of entrusting it. He says in verse 18, that you may wage the good warfare. Grace must be defended. The primary opponent in Ephesus in Paul and Timothy's day was those that were misusing the law to make the law a burden over people. We know that. We talked about that a little bit last week. We'll see it more as we unpack 1 Timothy. It comes up in 2 Timothy as well. Those that misunderstood the gospel and misunderstood the law and got things all conflated and were messing up the message of salvation in presenting it to people. So we need to be clear of what those opponents to the message of salvation are so that we can protect that message. Today, we still face the challenge of legalism. and We still face the challenge of the misinterpretation of the law. We need a war against to protect the gospel. And we still face the opposite struggle of those that say, those that are anti-law, those that are anti-obedience. They say, well, if I just believe, I don't have to obey. I'm, I'm free in Christ. And, and Jesus, 
has called us to love him by keeping his commandments, to love God, to love neighbor, and to love him by keeping his commandments. So yeah, we're called to not worship the law, but we're called to obey the God who in love has saved us and made us new. So we face the challenges of legalism for sure, but we, place, we face all sorts of other obstacles to the gospel in our day. The obstacle of cultural Christianity of a Christianity that is true in name only, of people that, that claim the name of Jesus without fully embracing or understanding what the life of Christ is and what the gospel is. We have to be explicitly clear. We want to preach the gospel every week because we know that just because somebody names the name of Christ doesn't mean they have truly understood and responded to the gospel. We face the challenge of technology. One of our life groups is, is facing that challenge head on to say, how does technology distract us control us, war for our affections. Then beyond that, one of the problems with technology is our obsession with expressive individualism, our our idolizing of our own sexuality, issues like that, uh, false gods and false religions that seek into a culture where we are most concerned not with what God wants, but what we, we want, what makes us feel good, what makes us feel right. And you apply that expressive individualism that puts me at the center of everything, you apply that to, you, you give that license to sexual sinners, and, and all of a sudden, you're off the rails. You're off the rails into all sorts of sinful behaviors that people are following after to define themselves by their carnal desires, to define themselves by those sins that are temptations, that need to be guarded against. When we guard the gospel, we guard the gospel against something, against those oppositions of legalism, of antinomianism, that, that ideology that, that goes against the law, cultural Christianity, expressive individualism, sexuality, technology, all of these things that are warring for, for our attention and our allegiance against the truth of the gospel. Paul speaks to individuals by name. He talks a lot about false teachers, talks a lot of generalities about false teachers, and these two guys, they get named out, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have been shipwrecked. Here's what I want you to think about. Again, back to the flooding illustration. As the grace of God comes into your life, the boat of legalism didn't withstand the surging flood of the grace of God for Hymenaeus and Alexander. They tried to ride that boat of legalism. They tried to hold on to the law. That's what the false teachers in Ephesus were doing. And they got shipwrecked along the way. And all of these other ideologies, all these other alternatives to worshiping God, these other things war for your attention and your affections. They will leave you shipwrecked because the grace of God does not accept any rivals. The grace of God pushes for full allegiance. The grace of God overwhelms us. And whatever you are holding on to in your own flesh, whatever you're trying to align alongside the grace of God, I want Jesus plus this. I want, I want to follow God, but I'm going to hold on to this that I know God doesn't honor because I really want it and it feels good. That's going to leave you shipwrecked because God's grace is overwhelming. We must forget what lies behind and press on toward what is ahead for the sake of the upward call of Christ. Because God's way is good. His offer of salvation is rich and it's there for us. So we're going to celebrate this morning, but I'm going to close us in in a couple of things. So AJ and the team, y'all can come on up. I want you as believers, I've got two ways of closing this. For those of you in Christ, Remember who you once were. Celebrate the change. Remember who you were in Christ when you were not in Christ. Remember who you were as an unbeliever and who you are now. Truly follow the pattern that Paul takes to celebrate those changes and hop onto that wave of overflowing grace that God has given to you and then reach out to somebody else and say, let me tell you my story of how grace overwhelmed me. Because I wasn't any better than you. I didn't have everything figured out. I was a broken sinner. And this wave caught me 
and picked me up. And now I want to tell you how to get on the boat and ride the wave with me. But I recognize, too, that not all of us have accepted Christ at this point. So for those that have not received Christ, here's where I want you to do. Examine where you are now. Are you broken? Are you searching? Are you hurting? Find that area of brokenness. Name it. Recognize it. Verse 12, Paul says, I was weak and I didn't even know it. I thought I was strong, but I was weak. Receive this grace that says, though you are a sinner, Christ has died for you. And you're not going to be the worst sinner that was ever saved by grace. Paul already claimed that title. Receive the gift of God for new life. And then we can all just celebrate together. So if you're in this first category, you've got some work to do this week to rightly worship, to celebrate, and to tell the story of what God has done in you to somebody else. If you're in that second category, unsure of where you are with Jesus, then you need to find me down here as we sing. Let's stand and let's sing together. The great I am, a crown of thorns upon his hand. The Father's heart displayed for us. Oh God, we thank you for the cross. Lift it up. On Calvary's hill, we curse your name, and even still, you bore our shame, and paid the cost, oh God, we thank you for the
Father, we're here to celebrate that victory. We would be nowhere without it. It is our reason for gathering. It is our reason for living. That Jesus, you have overcome the grave, paid the penalty for our sin. You've given us new life. Spirit, send us out this morning to represent your kingdom well to live as citizens of an eternal kingdom, spreading the light into the darkness, seeking the truth in an age of lies, and seeking to bring many to know and respond to this message we've heard. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remain standing. Receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.